0: Live from the Talking Joe studios, it's Talking Joe with Chief and Chris. Hey, 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 it's me, the Chief, joined by my buddy, Christopher McLeod, now with my full name, if that's what we're going with, uh, from the Full Paul Force podcast and of course Talking Joe. And this is an extra special episode of Talking Joe because someone has strolled into the Talking Joe Studios off the street. We said, hey, who are you? Ah, and I recognise you. In you come. That's right, it's, uh, it's a name who'll be familiar to readers of G.I. Joe, comic artist legend himself. He's coming for a quick wag. It is, of course, the fantastic Mr. Andrew Wildman. Uh, how are you, sir? How do I get out of this place? <laughs> <laughs> Once you're in, you're in, my friend.
1: You had your chance. I'm lost. You had your chance early on when uh, Skype failed. On, on massive oh, yeah. levels
0: <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you doing on this uh this bright and breezy monday evening in the uk um, re- rainy drizzly how's the weather where you are
2: uh, i don't know it's dark i can't see <laughs>
0: uh, i'm very well thank you Good. yes very it's well. a pleasure to have you on i gave you very short notice and it's not a problem if you don't have one but we have a little segment on the show called Beverage for the show. Beverage for the show. show. Now I am gonna go and drink my beverage for the show. Now I myself have a beverage, Christopher. Do you have one?
1: I do, and I'm very angry. Um, And I'm very angry that I have one as well.
0: Okay, Mr. Wildman, I didn't give you much notice, so it's okay if you don't. I'll pretend. Okay, you pretend. So <laughs> my beverage I have, I signed up for this thing called Beer 52, and I'm not a big drinker, really. It was that when beer rebranded yeah, and, yeah. and went back to z- it, issue one? No, I bought some. I bought something from Amazon, and it came with like all those, you know sometimes you get those vouchers for money off things. Uh, this was like one of those, get subscribe to beer, get eight cans of beer a month for round-the-world beers, whatever, pay, blah, blah, 24 quid a month. But the first month is free, so I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get the first month for free, pay the four quid shipping, and then just cancel straight away. It gives me eight beers. I don't really drink that much, <laughs> but I thought it was a nice one. So they sent playing me... Playing the system. They sent there. me beers. It was called, it was called Rugby Nation because it was eight beers from nations that are playing in the Rugby World Cup in Japan. And this one I have here is a can of the White Hag Irish Brewing Company. It's called Cauldron of Plenty. It's a very jazzy, kind of crafty beer. It's an oatmeal porter. Now, I don't drink that much. I don't know what a porter is. Either of you guys know what a porter is? You're asking no. the person. No. no. Okay. Anyway, it's an oatmeal porter. It's 5.2%. Let's have a go at this. See what... See what... It t- oh, dear. It's a very fizzy top. Here we go.
1: <laughs> kind of wish your video was back on.
0: I'll put it back on. I'll show you boys. I don't know if you can see to the camera there yeah oatmeal porter very jazzy that's a drink it's, it's, it's okay yeah it's okay lovely stuff um <laughs> yeah I, i'm gonna read actually wait a minute i'm gonna read you the spiel cauldron of plenty dagda was the irish mythological god of knowledge abundance life and death his is a lot of stuff his prized possession was his cauldron of plenty from which he ate his favorite food oatmeal anyone who ate from his cauldron would be eternally fulfilled we hope you are suitably satisfied by this rich Yet gentle, multi dark ale. Enjoy this complex and fruit f- and flavourful, roasty character with a silky finish that comes from the addition of oats. <coughs> oh, so, me. is this a, is this a beer or is it a book? I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, it's a beer. It's, it's actually quite tasty. Yeah. Didn't think you were going to get this, did you, Mister Wildman? Uh, anyway, Chris Christopher, what have you got, my friend? I um
1: to to be much quicker than that. Um, <laughs> my wife over the weekend thought it would be interesting to get me something i hate which is kombucha um i don't know why she's oh. done it but there there we go so packed with probiotics live kombucha sparkling probiotic tea it's called doctor kombucha it's got 80% less sugars than soda uh, and it's usda organic which means absolutely nothing in this country let's try this yes. out Okay, that's the... You know I hate kombucha. There we go. Before you can... Believe you can and you will is what it says underneath the That's You know, that's fancy. Let's try it. Do you know what? I have to eat my words. That is not bad at all. I hate kombucha (laughs) and that is actually really nice. I don't know... It doesn't have that socks taste like all the other kombuchas I've ever had. <laughs> so I take it all okay. back.
0: My wife's amazing. Uh, I love you, Kate. Uh, let's move on. Okay, moving on. Right, let's get to uh, down to why we're really here. So, all right, stop. Whatever you're doing, TJ's back, the airwaves were chewing, rocking. A G.I. Joe podcast, interview special, questions will be asked. Will it ever stop, yo? I don't think so. Not as long as someone's publishing, Joe Artists, writers, G.I. Joe fanboys, let's get this thing started and hope we don't annoy our guest. In the studio right now, they've come in for a chat discussing when, where and how. Probing. We're going in deep. Anything left, you might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery. Chief and Chris are the best in the biz. Please don't forget about the G.I. Joe pop quiz. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. obviously a legend in the comics industry and a lot of other stuff since graduating from that and Andrew's here as well yeah (laughs) um but let's go let's let's go right back to the beginning little baby Andrew Wildman well maybe not a baby as a kid into comics and then tell us about that kind of path into comics and what your influences were you know as as you started doing it for a living right
2: so you want the whole life story then well well i don't know did you read <laughs> okay, were comics, well, were in, comics the
0: in your childhood did you read them
2: yeah yeah okay so so when i was very young i i used to read the beano and the dandy and that kind of thing i am incredibly old so So then I would would also read things like Hotspur and Battle and all those kind of...
1: Battle, you genius. I love you.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, so when I was very young, it it really was either the kind of, you know, Beano and Dandy kind of cartoon comics, or it was basically war or football. That was comics largely. (laughs) And then when I was about, I don't know, seven years old, something like that, on holiday, I came across Marvel Comics, and I... The first one I got, I think, was Avengers 44 or something. And I was completely hooked. I mean, it was incredible. For a start, they were in colour. I mean, you know, what wasn't to like? And the whole kind of superhero thing was amazing. I'd not seen it before. So, well, I suppose Batman on TV... I was kind of around then. So I was aware of superhero characters, but the comics were amazing. So I think at that point, I was on a life's mission to draw that stuff. And I used to copy things out of the comics and just that was my initial kind of... Although I wasn't aware of it, that was my training, my initial training for becoming a comic artist, just working out how the shapes worked, how the lines worked, how you could create character and movement with so few lines on a piece of paper. Yeah. I mean, I was doing the same thing with cartoons as well so i'd also have books with disney characters in and i was just studying the line work just because i loved it so i can i carried on with that until eventually i went to art school the only reason i went to art school was because i was thrown out of school (laughs) right (laughs) interesting i I mean it's not quite as bad as it sounds but i was um killed three people right got it uh, yeah that that was that's all it was (laughs) and for some reason now I, w- I went to a very good school. I mean, I passed my. I got a scholarship to a to a really good school, but I was massively out of my depth. I think I got four what was then O levels, which are kind of like GCSEs, yeah. and I scraped into the sixth form. I did one year of the sixth form, and they they said you can't. They literally said. Not that these words haunt me at all, but they literally said, you can't stay here. You're not good enough. Wow. So I was completely cast adrift. So I spoke to a friend of mine at school and I said, they've just told me I've got to leave. And he said he's got to leave as well. And I said, what are you going to do? So he said, I'm gonna go and do graphics. And I said, What what's that? He said, I've no idea. It's like drawing <laughs> and stuff. So I thought, yeah, I'll do graphics then. <laughs> so I so I went and did graphics, not really knowing at the time what it was. But that was fine. So I, I did graphic designer, then went on to a degree course to study as a graphic designer. But I specialized in illustration. So I learned that I learned the nuts and bolts of being a graphic designer, but took all the illustration briefs. But the thing was that every brief they gave me whether it was to you know design a book cover or whatever whatever it was i did everything in a comic book style and they just actively tried to deter me from doing that so you need to try other you know other mediums. you need to try pastels and watercolors and whatever i was like whatever but i don't want to. <laughs> it's, that's not why i'm here yeah
0: and and at that stage had you had you started to kind of develop your because you've got quite a distinctive style had you developed the early formings of that or were, were you kind of not tracing but kind of copying the styles of them of the marvel books that you were reading
2: to a degree yeah there was very very few artists that really inspired me i mean generally i was inspired by all of it but in terms of honing in on particular artists whose work i would notice more than others was john buscema that was mm. he was the first one that i really really whose work i really really loved and his work was probably more realistic than a lot of a lot of other artists his anatomy was amazing the amount of character that he got into it and yet still made them look realistic yeah he did Conan didn't
0: he did he do Conan Bishima as well as Avengers
2: yeah Aven- it was all the Avengers stuff that that I really liked before all the Conan stuff so it was definitely John Bishima I was never really a big Jack Kirby fan I mean I appreciate his work now but at yeah. the time I wasn't particularly inspired by Jack Kirby wasn't realistic enough.
1: At this stage, could you see yourself getting into the industry, the comic industry? Had that even dawned on no. you at all?
2: No, I mean, it, it was kind of like a dream, but it seemed like an unrealistic one. It yeah. was it was like one of those, I want to be a rock star kind yeah. of Yeah, I want to be a football no. player, I want to be an
1: astronaut, that yeah. kind of thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely that. They're on the same level. Yeah. I think they're on the same, yeah, podcaster. Podcaster, comic <laughs> artist, professional football player in the Premier League and yeah they're all on the same level to me astronaut yeah,
2: yeah. so that i mean part of me was completely driven to do that but the but i think that was balanced out by the part of me at that sort of age you know like 18 19 whatever yeah where you didn't really think that far ahead you just thought about you know what am i doing at the weekend or yeah. <laughs> do you know what i mean how can I get enough money to buy the next album that I want to buy? <laughs> there was nothing else going on really, so there wasn't a plan as such but i i joined i saw in the back of a a British comic, you know one of the marvel british comics i don't know which one it would have been um but this was sort of. 81 round about that kind of time about this thing called the ssi which is the society of strip illustration and it was a group of artists that used to get together in london so i got my portfolio i joined this thing you know by post you probably had to send in a postal order amazing amazing <laughs> and then i kind of went on down to london one thursday evening or went whenever it was into the press club somewhere in the middle of soho I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who was going to be there, but I thought I need to just see if I can meet some people in the industry. So I went along. I got my portfolio with me, and I bumped into all these people, none of which I knew who they were. Yeah. And I remember showing my portfolio to somebody, and he was looking at it, and he he was saying, "Well, this is really nice, and you know, this is great." And he said, "But the way that you've drawn," he was starting to then give me some instruction. The way you've drawn this character here, and the way you've drawn that arm, that's like the anatomy is not quite right. It's really good, but you. Need to practice more and as a young kind of not arrogant as such probably insecure more than yeah, arrogant yeah it's a young insecure artist i got a bit grumpy about that and i was like yeah whatever but that was <laughs> dave Gibbons.
0: yeah that no was way. dave
2: Gibbon. oh way, no no wicked way. <laughs> so at that time i was what year was that then that was about 81 i should think okay so at that time in that room i didn't know that evening i didn't know until after i got home and then went the following month but in that room was dave gibbon's Brian Bolland, wow. um they- Lloyd Alan, I think Alan Moore was there he might have come on a little bit later but it was all those guys I mean that's wow. you know there's big stuff going on Des Skin was there as well so I got to know all those guys I guess they were all kind of deep into 2000 AD I mean. it really was Marvel UK 2000 AD yeah it was the beginning of all of that really yeah. not the beginning of 2000 AD but the beginning of, of when those people were starting to really flex those muscles mm. just before they then went off to work for America so then I I was asked to try out for Marvel UK Okay, on Thundercats. So I did a a (laughs) two-page. Absolutely love that comic so so much. Yeah,
1: like I I remember as being uh, as a kid going into the newsagents round the corner in Munsley, which is a tiny little seaside village in Norfolk, and going to the post office and seeing the Thundercats comic in there. I think there was other ones you worked on as well that I picked up, uh, Galaxy Rangers. Was another one I remember coming out. And I'm just going, like, the Thundercats one, though, was just brilliant. I loved every second of that.
2: Yeah. I did a lot of covers at that time as well. You know, they'd give me. Like, the visionaries and oh, that kind of thing. Yeah, You love visionaries. I'd love... I so,
1: Honestly, the, again, that was the same thing. The visionaries, the Marvel UK visionaries comics were just oh, amazing, yeah. You've, yeah. Unfortunately, you've been involved in everything that I absolutely love. So thanks, Andrew. Thanks for ruining my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: I mean, I actually... I worked on some comic stuff before all of that. Yeah. But not in a way that i was kind of connected with anyone as such so yeah, yeah but that was the 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 first stuff that i properly started to do but actually working for marvel uk was a few years after that initial meeting with people like dave and dave david lloyd was amazing actually he was so encouraging and he used to chat to him on the phone in the evenings and he'd say yeah you know gotta persevere it'd be really great just carry on don't give up you know it, it was really, really good. I got a lot, a lot to thank him for in terms of just not. It's so easy to give up. Yeah, you know, yeah. another year goes by and you haven't broken into anything, and yeah. it's really easy to give up.
0: You probably can't see that now in the modern industry, can you? Of you know, kind of big shot writers calling up young upstart artists saying telling them to persevere and you're know, giving them a bit of a lifeline and stuff i don't really see that happening nowadays maybe it does but
1: well you say that but i, I know a couple of editors that kind of like an idw uh area they they yeah. do tend to do that with because i've spoken to a couple of the the newer artists that are on the on and writers and stuff and they do say that they do get a lot of encouragement from the editorial staff mm. but, but I, I mean i think it's there's there's more it feels more genuine back then Andrew what would you say if kind of you know it kind of feels like they're, yeah. they're, they're doing it now because they they really want to get this stuff out in time or whatever, but back then there was a genuine kind of i don't know like a feeling about it
0: yeah maybe less cutthroat you know and more a desire to see people succeed
2: yeah I think you know thinking back to those early days of the sSI you know in sort of eighty one eighty two whenever Those first few years when I was dipping my toe into it, I think the difference was that there was no social media. So everybody now is communicating on social media and and just by the nature of the technology, it's all nice and glossy and shiny. And, you know, it's that whole kind of perfect view of people's lives and you kind of interact with that. With the SSI, it literally was a bunch of guys on a dark, wet night in a in a bar in London. <laughs> awesome. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you didn't have awareness of the of the greater world outside. So I think for those guys, I think for Dave and David, Alan, whatever, in some senses, we were all closer together than we were further apart. We were a bunch of guys who wanted to do comics, and at that point, the world was not our oyster. It, you know, it was the same for them. They were definitely one step ahead because they were working on 2080 and they were possibly on the brink of breaking into America. But it was just a bunch of like-minded people. The membership of the SSI was not very big and it was the only game in town. Wow. Right. You know what I mean? So
1: with the actual I mean, because obviously you said you, you worked in some comics prior to getting into the kind of the brands like the toy brand stuff. When did when was the first kind of like toy brand story you did? Was it Thundercats? Was was that the first one that you did in the toy brand stuff? No,
2: just ooh, no, just before that, I worked for a company in Manchester called London Editions. Yes, and I did some He Man. Cool, and I did something called Brave Star. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I love Brave Star. Brave Star!
0: Brave Star! yeah yeah i'm not seen the comic or anything but I just
2: yeah i did like a whole Brave star special thing and i can't remember how much he man i did but you know that was really the first proper strip work i did but it was a bizarre process so yeah you'd colour your own artwork so you'd pencil and ink it on one side of the board you know like right. a board quite thin not thin but you know and then you'd flip it over onto a light box so you could just about see the line work through the board and then you color it on the back. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, and so the the black line work, they would scan from the front, which is where your line work was. And then they scanned for the color plate by scanning the back where there oh, were hey. no black
0: lines. And I bet you didn't get paid as a penciler, inker, and colorist, did you? Yeah, oh, I
2: can't remember what the rates <laughs> were. They would have been pretty, <laughs> pretty atrocious. But you know, Which, you
0: took whatever you could get. Yeah. It was, and then you posted that art off to the publisher, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
2: There was no. No scanning and emailing no scanning and uploading and none of that no i used to take everything down to the local photocopy shop and get it photocopied just so that i had a record just in case it got lost in the post oh good
1: idea (laughs) of course (laughs) also insurance for you know maybe later on in in life i can sell these
2: (laughs) but now there's no thought of that there was i don't i don't think people thought that way back then no probably not no (laughs) because that's the thing you
1: probably you probably didn't realize you're going to be working on things that are going to be talked about again for however many years down the line getting getting two jokers pulling you on a podcast to talk about all of these
0: toy (laughs) brands wait a minute wait a minute i hear something oh no it's a gi (laughs) joe pop quiz pop quiz it's a gi joe pop quiz pop quiz question one cobra commander (laughs) is having a dinner party on a friday night (laughs) he needs to get some groceries in where does he do his shopping does he do it at a asda b tesco c sainsbury's d morrison's E Waitrose or F Marks and Spencer? That question is to Andrew. <laughs> he does it. I couldn't quite hear you. So you said Destro, didn't you? <laughs> is he an ASDA man? Is he in, for the for the for the US listeners? Destro's, uh, I, I, amazing. I, ASDA is probably the 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 bargain basement of the supermarket world, and uh, ranging all the way up to Marks and Spencer at the top, with everything in between. So, what what, what would be his supermarket of choice? Do you think?
2: Yeah, it's going to be Waitrose or Fortnum and Mason. Yeah, big time, <laughs> big yeah. time. All right,
0: there you go.
1: He's pretentious. Um, <laughs> then again, I get mine right. from Waitrose as well. <laughs> Back to the podcast. I forget where we were. Okay, so talking about those brands and everything, I was quite interested in. um yeah. Like when you said the process, I'm really interested in knowing what it was like. Because, you know, I know a lot of kind of artists have, you know, they, they, they go to like uh, an office and work with other artists and it kind of like a contained company style setup. But then I know a lot of others that are all freelance and it's all done at home and all that kind of stuff. Were you doing a lot of your work from home and then just sending it in? Was it all that kind of satellite stuff? Or was there any point where you were going into a company and working with other people like within that kind of office environment
2: no i mean the situation for me unlike some of my peers at that time was that i was because marvel uk was down in london but i was i was living in nottingham at the time because i was for a while i still had a day job as a graphic designer i was running a design studio yeah so then evenings and weekends i was doing all the comics stuff so no i just all has to had to be posted off and so i never had that i can remember other people saying that they were working in the studio at marvel uk yeah did that did that Just make you jealous thinking, <laughs> that'd be awesome yeah but no that was not available to me
0: <laughs> i remember speaking to brian hitch at a comic convention and he was saying when he was 16 and he had a he had a gig doing action force at the age of 16 or 7 maybe 17 and he used to do it on his mum's kitchen dining room table amazing and uh she'd say right the dinner's ready now and she'd be bringing up uh you know pots of potatoes and um vegetables and he has a clear he's doing he's fully doing his artwork on this d- dining room table and he's having to clear it all off he and, was uh, really young at the time wasn't he yeah he was like 17 17 when he was Unreal. doing the Force. Unreal, yeah, crazy yeah. i didn't realize that marvel uk had a like a bullpen style like the us then like an actual studio they
2: had some space i i don't know that it was i mean it wasn't like marvel us i mean you know <laughs> like probably slides
1: going down the stairs and everyone <laughs> everyone on beanbags that kind of thing right
0: <laughs> did you get to go over and see them the marvel us offices at all yeah yeah okay. quite a number of times
2: yeah i started working for marvel us before i'd stopped working for marvel uk all right. Uh, I mean, by that point, I'd given up the day job. Yeah. So I gave up the day job, where it got to the point where I realised I was earning because I'd got I'd got a mortgage and three kids at that point. Yeah. You know? oh, wow. It's nice. good work. So uh, it got to the point where I realised I was earning it the same money in evenings and weekends drawing comics as I was earning in my day job so i thought this is this is like the flipping point that's the hard point to get to for a lot of people who are holding down a job and doing freelance work yeah and you can get too used to earning extra money and then just expand your lifestyle into that but i thought no if i if i build up one to kind of replace the other then you know we're in good good shape so
1: probably definitely makes you more happy as well i suppose because you're doing stuff that you actually want to do as opposed to you know stuff you know for a means to an end type
2: scenario yeah it's pretty terrifying when you make that jump yeah yeah <laughs> yeah big, yeah, totally but I made that jump before I started working for Marvel US if I remember rightly. I was getting enough money from Marvel UK and just other little illustration gigs you yeah. know bits and pieces so so I could do that but yeah as soon as I secured some work with Marvel US you know I went over to see them just as soon as I possibly could I yeah. said look I want to come over and they're like yeah yeah okay. <laughs>
1: Mm any time you could just pop in yeah
0: (laughs) just just out of interest was there a specific reason why 2000 AD didn't play a bigger part on your resume I'm just a massive massive 2000 AD fan and I'd like to have seen you on some longer run format stories on it but was there was a reason why that you know as a successful UK artist that that didn't feature as part of your
2: work? I did do a Judge Dredd strip for them. So there is some work of mine in there, not much, just two, two short stories. To be honest... I'm upfront about saying that I don't think I was good enough. I don't think I was good Mm -hmm. enough to work for 2000 AD. I think the standard of of work on 2000 AD was superior to that on Marvel UK. Right. Now, that might just be my perception of it, but there was something about 2000 AD that was, I don't know, it just seemed, maybe it had a longer history, that long history of black and white British comics, I think. There's always an emphasis on detail in
1: 2000 AD, wasn't there? There's all that kind of like every background, like, even not on the floor, there'd be, like, blades of grass that would be just be, have, like, detail in the grass. And you're kind of thinking, well, it's, it's, it, it was the works of art. I think there's... Was there a feeling, or do you think the difference would have been, like, with Marvel, that wanting to kind of get that stuff out just to just to sell it you know just to get it out as quickly as possible so you, you would not necessarily skimp but there would be a different style involved to make it a bit quicker
2: it was different i mean also i guess you you know you need to consider that AD kind of appealed to a, a more mature audience yeah a proper sci-fi audience whereas Marvel UK is as, as much as everybody working on it was doing good work I mean yeah,
0: totally, you yeah. know
2: Furman's Transformers scripts were pretty grown up to you know they really yeah, were yeah. but nevertheless they were toy books yeah toy and cartoon books so they didn't require that level of kind of beautiful rendering and yeah. illustration yeah
0: I guess different audiences and I suppose you know like you said you can't sell short that we're not going to exclusively talk about 2008, but I just want to say that, you know, if you've got Mick McMahon and Dave Gibbons and Brian Bolland and, Colas Esquera, all these guys drawing dread, just dread alone, and all plus all the other strips. Then that was a high-caliber group of artists working there. But, but like you say, also served a different audience, perhaps because yes. the Marvel, a lot of the Marvel UK books sold very, very well. You know, and that's testament to not only the licenses but also the creators that were on them as well. It's because mm. I was buying
1: them. That's why I was just buying everything, everything that came. <laughs> You're out. You were buying all of the- literally <laughs> everything. Yeah, like going to yeah. news agents and news agents to pick them up. Were you a, were you a fan of some of the brands that you were working on by any chance, Andrew? Was it a case of it was kind of like a, a job in in the sense, or were there some that you are really interested in?
2: No, I, mean, I was the wrong age, really. I mean, I didn't really know what any of them were. Yeah. I knew that <laughs> I knew that Action Force was, you know, kind of our version of an American thing, which was kind of the latest. Iteration of the original GI Joe, which was uh, you know an our version of that was Action Man. So there was a very really tenuous link to something that I had grown up with. I mean, I'd seen Thundercats on TV, I used to, and I used to watch that. I used to you know think that was cool. So. Amazing. I understood that one and I enjoyed drawing that. And also, Thundercats was the book to be on for a lot of people when you worked for Marvel UK because in amongst all that licensed stuff, it was the closest thing to superheroes that you could get. Good point. Yeah, 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 totally. You know, they were costumed humanoid characters. So, so people wanted to draw that to kind of practice their kind of superhero chops, you know, in terms of drawing that stuff. So I was really happy drawing Thundercats. And then occasionally I used to go and hand deliver my work to the Marv UK offices. Nice. And I went in to deliver it to Steve White, who was the editor at the time. And he, you know, he really liked it and he was going to give me the next script and all that kind of thing. And then, as I've told many people before, the, the editor sitting next to him leant across and looked at the pages and he said, do you want to do some work for me? And I was like, what What book do you do then? And he said, Transformers. And literally, I was like, what is Transformers? <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs> amazing. And I was like, "No, I don't. I don't want to draw robots." What <laughs> the? And then he said, "It pays this
0: much." And you said, "Yes, sir, I will do it." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't think of many. Apart from drawing lots of horses, which everyone tells me are difficult to draw, I can't think of many worse things to meticulously draw page after page of robots, really.
2: Yeah, there's two ways that people look at that. One, some people say they're really, really hard to draw because, you know, to get them right and to get any sort of...
1: Kind of human emotion. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I didn't find them difficult because I never really thought of them as robots. I just always approached them as... Humanoids in robot costume yeah yeah
0: that was a question that came up us chatting together before you came on and you were kind of the first one to humanize especially the faces and the emotions if you will of of the characters was that a conscious choice of by yourself to do that or just it came that you thought i know i'm going to do it like this it was i mean i didn't do that
2: so much for the marvel uk stuff there were times that i did um, Largely was probably the frustration of not doing superheroes. So I, you know, I wanted to get those facial facial expressions. You know, when you have got a character like Hot Rod, they are quite humanoid or Galvatron. You know, yeah. But certainly when I got onto the American book they asked me to try out for the american book because i needed an artist and they'd seen my uk work and they said the editor don daly at the time he said you've got to bear in mind we like your work in terms of storytelling but bear in mind that the american audience doesn't like all that kind of gritty slobbery stuff that you do it's too oh organic we want they like them to look like robots so More straight edges and all that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Not as good, effectively.
2: So I did a two-page sample, bearing that in mind, sent it in, and I didn't get the gig. They didn't like what I'd done. (laughs) So they gave the book to Dwayne Turner, I think. And he did one issue and they didn't get very good reaction to that. So they came back to me and they said, um, you've got the book and you can do what the hell you like. <laughs> that was a quick turn. That was like a 180. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So at the time I thought, right, A, I want to do a really good job because I want to impress. So I'm going to put a lot of work into yeah. this, lots of detail. I am going to get those expressions in because they are sentient beings. And if they have any way of expressing, we've really got to show that they have feelings yeah um where they're not just tin boxes you know they have pain and joy the same as everything else so, i mean that's the way simon was writing it yeah. and so the best example of that at the time for me was barry smith's machine man so when you oh, look at the machine great. man books the way that stuff would get battered and damaged yeah. and on the interiors there was like bits of panels falling off yeah. and coiled wires on the floor and all that kind of thing and i thought that's how I'm going to do transformers. Yeah, yeah. So I just ran with it. Was it ever difficult
1: for you to do stuff that you you had like no interest in at all? I mean, was was that ever the case when you were given a, a kind of job or you took on a job and it was like, I don't really like this, but you know, I'm still going to put my all into it. Was it difficult to do that? as an artist well
2: yeah it's it is difficult as an artist but that's quite a uh, um i don't know what, what what's the word i don't know a terrible question precocious <laughs> kind of a <laughs> kind of way to carry on you know yeah sure so partly so me as a as somebody who would drawn up, grown up loving comics and wanted to draw them to then be given something that I wasn't interested in. You do. You do initially think, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Yeah. But then what overrode that for me was that I was in my late 20s and I got a mortgage and kids. Yeah, of course. You know, and that's an incredible, it's incredible motivator. Motivation. Yeah. <laughs> so then I, I I, did make the choice for myself. You know, I had a word with myself, as they say. <laughs> that's British bloke, is And I said to myself, You can you can take on the responsibility of house and kids and you can do it for the money or you can just say, look, I'm drawing comics. It doesn't matter what it is. This is the best job in the world.
0: Totally. Yeah totally like
2: why would i be grumpy about it i can say it
1: never came across like i from all the stuff i've seen of yours which you know quite a lot considering <laughs> you seem to work yeah. on all the things like i bought but um yeah. you know from, from the stuff that you've from the the, the the vast stuff that you've done i've never looked at it and thought oh god he didn't really enjoy doing that like it never comes across in the art in the no. actual art so obviously you know that there isn't that 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 sense i was just interested in the thought of how, would you, how do you approach that when it's like, oh, you know, because I'm the same. Like, I'm a freelancer. I have uh, multiple clients and lots of different things. And when some stuff comes in, I'm really excited to do it. And then when other stuff comes in, I'm like, it's a job and I'll get that done. But um, yeah. I still, I, I, but like you say, I, it's not like you scrimp and you, or you stop putting your all into it. You still do yeah. that. But it's I just find it interesting as a, as a freelancer to freelancer, how mm. you cope with that when it's something like art. Because, I mean... You can some—I mean—you can sometimes tell when other artists are into something they're doing and not into something, you know. Yeah, I
2: mean the other thing that I was well aware of, having been a fan, you know, most yeah. most comics, especially when it comes to comics. Most comic artists have been fans. And when it comes to comics, I remember what it was like to be a fan. And I would not want to think yeah. that the person that had drawn the comic that I was reading was not giving their, it their yeah. all. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? It's kind of like your dad doesn't love you, really. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like... <laughs> so so the, the readers deserve for you to... Because you're drawing it for them, really. Yes. So why would you not do the best job you can? Totally.
0: And then I guess from Transformers, was it a segue into G.I. Joe? Where did X Men Adventures come in?
2: Uh well there's a kind of a there's a line running straight through all of those. So when I when I started working on Transformers on the American book, Don Daly was the editor and Rob Tokar was the assistant editor. But almost as soon as I'd started working on it, Don Daly got his kind of, you know, he's doing some other stuff. And, and Rob Tokar took over as the editor. So then he's a, he got an assistant editor in, which was Chris Cooper. Right. So he they were working together on that for a while. But then Chris left the, the Transformers office because they were gearing up to cancel it anyway. Um, And he went to work for Bobby Chase. So Bobby Chase was the editor on various books, one of which was G.I. Joe. Yep, awesome. So a vacancy came up. I'd lost Transformers, but because I'd got on well with the people that I'd met... Uh, And I've actually come up on G.I. Joe, Chris got in touch and he said, Bobby's looking for an artist on G.I. Joe, you know, do you want to have a stab at that? So I did again, I did a tryout for it. And two things really worked for me in terms of that. One was that it was the chance to draw human characters at last, you know, I mean, (laughs) heroes and all that kind of thing. But it was human characters, plus the fact that it did have that action man lineage however tenuously. Yeah, totally, yeah. But the other thing is that the point of reference that you look at when you're trying out for G.I. Joe, it may still be that way now, but certainly back then was Michael Golden.
1: Yeah. Okay. okay, yeah
2: once if you want reference as to how to and you look at that stuff it really inspires you yeah so I gave it my all I lo- absolutely loved his work mm. and they gave me the job I did the sample and they gave me the job so Amazing. the way that that then eventually fed into x-men no I can't actually I it I, uh, no. <laughs> I don't know that's a, that's a different conversation anyway but uh, but I, Joe was yeah. was great I was really happy to get that yeah did you do you remember what the sample page was do you
1: remember what what sample you you gave them like what was on it. I got
2: a feeling it was like a, a fairly wide external shot. Okay. So they lots of stuff, different characters, hardware. You know. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. In terms <laughs> of all that, <play>, you know, <laughs> <laughs> doing that really tests your figure drawing, hardware drawing, perspective, all that stuff. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Multiple disciplines. Yeah.
2: In terms of reference,
0: were Hasbro sending you toys and vehicles, and how much? Did you have to, or was it suggested you go back and read some some previous issues from the series?
2: Uh, I never read much in terms of previous issues. You didn't really need to refer back to much because Larry's scripts oh, were yeah. interesting in their yeah. <laughs> verticals. In yeah. terms of toys, initially, no, they would give me various kind of 2D reference. Um, but then when when it was clear that I was... On the book long term because they liked what I was doing and it was obviously working. They did send me some toys. I think I got a message from them saying we're going to send you some some toy reference. I thought oh, that'd be fun, you know, a yeah. couple of figures, whatever. Yeah. And the, the door. I remember one day the doorbell <laughs> rang and I went to the the door and I opened the door and the courier guy. It was probably from FedEx or whatever. You couldn't see him because the box he was carrying was <laughs> was bigger than me. Amazing, was. amazing. So this. So this, you know, I took this massive box into the sitting room and then and then opened it and tipped all these stuff out. And there, I mean, there was just vehicles <laughs> and helicopters oh. and all the figures, like the whole lot. It's
1: a bloody Christmas.
2: Yeah, I know. And my son, who was about, he was probably about four at that oh. point. Four, he was loving it. He just, he just looked at it and it was almost like, you know, trembling with yeah. anticipation. You didn't have to send it back, did you? And I was like, these are not toys, it's reference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: if you're good. Yeah. So so gradually, over a period of time, I'd kind of undo one. i say, you can play with that one today, you know. But, uh, okay, nice. But nice. then he did get to the point that I just said, oh, come on, mate, let's just open the whole lot and play oh, with it. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Oh, my.
0: Did Hasbro or Editorial interfere much or ever send pages back or ask for redos through the
2: whole of my comics career with marvel i had very very little redo stuff it all seemed to work if any i mean time didn't allow for an awful lot of redo really if anything they would probably say next issue can you make sure that you know you do so okay. but i was i was i mean it was like you to get the characters quite accurate. But even then, I was playing with it the same way that I played with transformers. I can remember a, a scene where they were in the castle—the one that was in the Silent Citadel that Larry yep. had previously yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. It's when they introduced the Snake Eyes version with like the hockey mask. I yeah, wonder. yeah, yeah, totally. And he got like this kind of camo vest thing on. And there was a point at which he was in a fight scene, and when he fell over in the fight scene, I, I did it so that his shoulder strap broke. So that then when it got up, he ties it together in a knot because the, the strapping's broken. And then for then from then onwards I always drew snake eyes with a knotted shoulder strap on this kind of thing. So I, I just like oh. to put those little touches in to make it feel realistic and keep that continuity. So which is what I did with transformers. If something got broken, it stayed broken until there was until there either was or perceivably was a point at which they could get repaired but if they didn't if they were still out in the desert or whatever they would have that bit of panel still falling off until that's awesome. a big enough change of uh of scene that you know they would potentially have it repaired because it's real you know to the reader it's real so you're going to make it look as real yeah. as possible you mentioned briefly about
0: uh, larry harmer his writing and w- his scripts were they full marvel style or were they was it was he a man kind of alan moore kind of style in just precise detail and just breakdowns of every single page
2: no it was was marvel plot style which i don't know whether your listeners are kind of aware of the difference between that and full script so basically it was pages three to five and then he'd kind of explain what was going on he might suggest some dialogue if he needed to for, for detail reasons and then you'd just kind of visually choreograph it all and then he'd script it based on what you'd drawn. Yeah. That said, there were times where he would write quite extensive detail about how, how something should be, yeah but it wasn't full script but even then i can remember one of the scripts i got i had no idea what it was talking about I <laughs> over and over again with it was the splash page like the credits page i can't remember yeah. the name of the character but it said such a character running towards us firing as a red hot trace of blooms at the lens with anamorphic intensity <laughs> <laughs> What does that mean? I had to, You know, this is back in the days when phoning America was a big deal. So yeah. I waited for the right time at night and then, you know, on the dial phone, ring up. <laughs> it's was a bit like this. And I said, what, what on earth is he talking about? I have no yeah. idea what he's talking about. When is it explained to me, it made sense. But So sometimes he had this incredibly, yeah. quite a vivid way of writing that if you understood it, you really got what he meant. Yeah. Like you really got it. But if you didn't, all felt a bit dense and impenetrable at <laughs> But he was amazing, right? I only met him once while I was on the book. Oh wow! The trouble with Larry is that his reputation—well, his reputation, which is not necessarily who he is—but his yeah. reputation precedes him. Yeah, was in the forces, carries a gun in his briefcase. <laughs> yeah, so his reputation precedes him, which in some ways doesn't do him any favours or doesn't do any favour to the people that are engaging with him. So, yeah, stories that he carries a gun in his briefcase and all that kind of thing. <laughs> But then it got to the point where I don't know if I'm jumping the gun on any questions you're going to ask. Oh, go, go on, go for it. I came, I came to the end of my run on Joe not because they asked me to leave. I was still, you know, it was still going, going strong. But I decided to come off the book because. You know, my little lad was whatever he was, five or something, and he came into the studio one day and he said, "What are you drawing, Dad?" And I was like, oh, "I'm drawing GI Joe." He's like, "What are they? What's what they do? What's that, Dad?" And I was like, "It's a gun." What are they doing? They're shooting each other. And uh. this is not, I'm not up for this, you know. Mm. So I, I I was already started on working on the X-Men book. So I just said to Chris, look, I'm going to move on. And they were okay with that. That was okay. But it wasn't until many years later at a comic convention in Southampton.
1: Roll Out Roll Call, was it? Yeah.
2: yeah I was at that one, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Larry came over was a guest And so I hadn't seen him in all those years wow. So I was having a chat with him And it was really nice to see him again after all that time And uh, the thing that I got, which I never got at the point I was working on the book Was that he's a pacifist And mm, yeah. the way that he was writing a book It's very easy to read these things on the surface And think about, you know, mit- military and conflict and all those kind of things Which, to a degree, it is But there was always some kind of more moral yeah. message going on in Larry's work Definitely. and I'd kind of glossed over that because I was interested in the imagery and, and not necessarily paying enough attention to the, the, to message, the narrative I yeah. Suppose. yeah the message reading the narrative but not hearing the message so it was kind of nice to put that thought to bed really yeah not, not that, that you're, you're going, going to, to but let's say you had
0: come back, back to G.I. Joe 10 years later having done it or you came to it for the first time 10 years down the line would you have done anything differently do you think
2: i would have attacked it the same i tended to find that maybe maybe it's, it's like this for a lot of artists one once you start working on a book you're kind of on the inside of it and you find all sorts of interesting things to engage with about that book rather than just the outside yeah you know you are the one pulling the strings of the characters in terms of how they move and all that kind of thing, and you're not the reader. So you do have a lot more invested in it. So as much as somebody will present you with a book that you might think is fairly superficial as a reader, especially if you hadn't ever read it before, once you get into it, you realise it's not. It's still characters, it's still a narrative, and you've got to breathe life into it. And the only way to do that satisfactorily is to enjoy it and get in there with them. Get in there with the characters, you know, and play along with them.
0: I hear I hear something over in the distance. I don't know if you boys can hear it. It's a GI Joe pop quiz, pop quiz, it's a G.I. Joe Pop quiz, pop quiz. Question two. You're in Las Vegas on a relaxing break. <laughs> One evening you're walking around a casino and you see a ruckus over in the corner. You go over to see what's happening. It's a game of high stakes poker. A crowd has gathered round the table. Everyone is watching. Seated round the table, a hawk. Scarlet, Cesspool, Firefly, and Ace. Who do you think's got the best chance of scooping up all the dough? (laughs) Is that a question for me? Oh, yeah, they're all for you. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Question to Andrew. Hawk, Scarlet, Cesspool, Firefly, or Ace? Scarlet. Scarlet. Ding. Correct. I don't know if it's correct or not, but we'll give it to you. (laughs) Um... We had a question here coming from Mark Seddon, yeah. and he he said, "In terms of your artwork, did you prefer to ink yourself, or whether was there an inker you liked to work with?" Now we've been reading through the comics; we've just getting to the end. I think we've just finished your run in terms of our reread on the podcast, and obviously we love all of your art. But and I know you worked with Stephen a lot, Baskerville. But I think I preferred your work when it wasn't inked by him, when you were inking yourself. What about yourself? How do you look back and see your art and who who was your favourite inker or or how did you think it looked different when it was inked by someone else?
2: Yeah, inkers are an interesting animal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, having said that, have you ever acted as just an inker over someone else's pencils?
2: Yes, I have. Yeah, uh, On Galaxy Rangers, I inked some Liam Sharp. Nice. Oh, <laughs> that wow. was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm, I'm reading his uh, Green Lantern with uh, Grant Morrison at the moment. It's a good book. It's a good book.
2: Yeah, I mean, Stephen inked a lot of my stuff. There were points at which Stephen's inks were very, very Baskerville. And he, there were points with, certainly later on in G.I. Joe, that he very much took ownership of it. Mm, yeah. it, it it was very, very, very him. And I think he, a lot of his style at that time was influenced by what was going on in some of the X-Men books. So Art T-Bear was one of the Incas that, whose work he liked right i wasn't overly keen on it but Stephen was always a safe pair of hands it was like however much detail you did or didn't put in and at the time uh, towards the end of Joe, i was doing x-men as well so i was doing two books a month yeah so that's like 44 pages of pencil artwork a month so i was really having to crank it out if i was going to slack off visually on any one of them i knew that Stephen could hold it together I would very definitely make sure that all the posing was right the shot angles were right all that kind of thing but I knew that he could add the detail
0: yeah
2: but there were times on some books when Stephen's inking was absolutely sublime. The in- the inking that he did on my Black Cat book was just wonderful. Yeah.
0: I've just I've just sent into the chat one of my favourite covers of yours. I don't know if you can yeah. put it up there. That's issue issue one two one. Yeah. Where the 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 ninja force are scaling up the side of the mountain uh, as they're about to go to the silent castle. I mean, that is so there's so much going on in that cover, it's fantastic.
2: Yeah, I like to get the angles right. It's very easy to kind of shoot everything quite flat. It's quite a it's too easy to do that. I always like to I try and do it in the storyboarding that I do now. So just low angles, high angles, get some yeah. good perspective going on yeah. there, you know. It's really
1: dynamic. I love how you've got the, you know, um chabang and nunchuck kind of hanging upside down as well. It's like really they're, they're all yeah. in different positions and stuff. It's, yeah, it's just superb, that cover.
0: Do you kind of, lastly, touching on G.I. Joe, that was a, a good period for you it, creatively? Did you feel fulfilled?
2: Yeah, I did. I mean, I did have that thing going on that I wanted to get onto the proper Marvel books. But the, all these years later, what I find really interesting, given that, given that I didn't even know what Transformers was and I did yeah. it, And, you know, it was a stepping stone. It was just my foot into Marvel. And then G.I. Joe was just the next step on that journey until eventually I could work on the proper uh, Marvel books. Which was a difficult thing for me because even when I got onto X-Men, it still wasn't the proper X-Men. It was, you know, just a version of the animated TV show. So it wasn't until I got to Black Cat and some, you know, Venom and stuff like that that it was... That it was real marvel so I do I do kind of value all that stuff but all these years later the thing that has done me more favors than anything are those two Hasbro books because yeah. you know in the in my career since then prime example you know TV show because I've got a t- TV show of my own out there a kids' preschool show. And the first meeting I had with the production company, once we'd kind of chosen which production company was going to make it, it was a company in, in Wales, and I had a meeting with them, and I was sitting in the waiting room waiting for the you know the art director and whatever to come and yeah. have a chat. <laughs> yeah. And this guy walked in, and, and so we were talking about TV and talking about the, the show and everything, and he just had this slightly kind of smiling but glazed look on his face. <laughs> I was like, are you all right? And he said, yeah. Can we talk about Transformers? <laughs> <laughs> Fanboy. A lot of the people that I work with, they grew up with that stuff, yeah. and I've found that Transformers and Geo Joe fans are more devoted to that than any of the Marvel fans. Marvel fans tend to flip from one thing to another, but I think if you're a Transformers or a Joe fan. You're all you always will be. Yeah.
0: I mean what what would you say I see you know, I've I've chatted to you loads over the years at conventions in the UK. Let's say you get you're at a convention and ten you're doing ten commissions, ten sketch commissions, what percentage of those would be transformers? A hundred percent? Or not? Or 90%? Oh, uh,
2: probably. Yeah, probably 80 to 90%. Yeah, yeah.
0: Probably, pro- probably no animated X-Men commissions.
2: Um, well, I get X-Men commissions, but right. nobody ever mentions the word animated. And <laughs> <laughs> next time I see you. <laughs> I'll tell you a book I thought you, you were
0: suited to and was really good was um, Spider-Man 2099. I was kind of hoovering up anything that Peter David wrote at the time. And obviously I was familiar with your stuff because I'd followed it in Transformers and G.I. Joe and I thought, okay, Rick Leonardi's come on and Chris Batista have come off the book. And then, oh wait a minute, here comes Andrew Wildman on. Oh wicked. How how was that was that something that they offered you or you pitched for it? Or how did that come about? Just out of interest for me personally.
2: I uh, you know what? I I can't actually remember. I think it's because when I did Black Cat and then Spider-Man, the Arachnese Project, which was a six yep. issue. Uh, Six issue thing. I was then on the radar of everybody who was dealing with Spider-Man um yeah they just asked me if i wanted to do it
0: it was a sizable run it was like 10 12 issues i think
2: yeah more than that i think well, yeah, I think i yeah. think about a year and a half okay I'm, i may be wrong there but it what yeah it was it was there was more spider-man 2099 than there was transformers yeah
0: that's the, yeah that's that's the crazy thing <laughs> when I the irony yeah exactly yeah yeah and obviously you did then go back and do some more transformers later didn't you with the generation to finish off the the run yeah, sorry, regeneration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to finish off the run.
2: Yeah, and I also did some stuff for Dreamwave at uh, the War Within. Yeah oh that was with Simon as well wasn't it yeah yeah it was and they asked me to do that and I wasn't working on much at that point and so I was looking for work so I thought well yeah I'll do it of course you know so it was kind of fun I didn't like the finished product very much the way that they colored it and everything was a yeah. slightly different process I thought the idea behind the process was good I just don't think the the final results kind of worked out as well as it could have done but It was fine. But Regen was, well, Regen was only supposed to be four issues initially. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of how we pitched it when they asked us to do something. Um, So we pitched it as four issues. And then it wasn't until the book got greenlit that we found out that they'd greenlit us to do 20 issues. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we had to massively expand what we'd had in had in mind for that. I mean, obviously that's clearly, you know, Simon doing the lion's share of that. But the the early conversations, we spoke about what kind of thing we'd like to do. I was quite clear about what I was up for doing. And then Simon being Simon, you know, he adopted some of that and then ran with it like he does. So But I didn't finish off that book. I had to, other things, I had, so I had to move off a bit before it was done.
0: I think you were on until maybe 93 or something like that, and then I'm trying to think who came on to replace you. Keto, uh, Keto. Yes, 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 of course. Well, you, you had a couple of pages in the book ended, issue 100, I think. Yes. Uh, oh, I see covers and I stuff. I want to yeah. do some of this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I wanted to feel as though, rather than just kind of fizzle out, that I got something where I knew what my end point was. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there was a final image of rodimus that i did which i knew was my last transformers oh wow
0: if you've got scripts coming in who was your favourite Transformer to draw and who were your favourite Joe or Cobra characters if you saw them in the scripts you thought oh cool wicked I'm going to I enjoy this one
2: in terms of Transformers it's kind of changed it changed over the years initially I liked all those kind of human style characters so I liked Hot Rod and I liked Galvatron and Cup and all those guys because yeah. yeah. they looked more human and when I was doing Regen actually I, re- I did really enjoy drawing Cup I don't know why it was there was something about that character that i hadn't really got before that i that i got when i was doing regen yeah i kind of finished my my kind of transformers stuff really enjoying drawing prime which was dull as ditchwater character to draw in reality <laughs> uh, you know there's nothing going on really with prime but the thing that i did which people did pick up on was how i i kind of found a technique for getting expression into prime because you know you can't see his mouth or anything you can't but just the subtleties of the eye shapes you can show so much anguish in those eyes and i enjoyed doing that and having to work hard on showing that anguish made me sounds fanciful but it made me feel the anguish of the character even more Oh, cool. so that that kind of some of that regen stuff with prime is is a good way to finish it being so he's kind of the lead character in a way but he's not the the star of the book is he. I mean, he's, he's yeah, the yeah. Obi Wan rather than Skywalker. You have a
1: real knack for making like a, a lot of a lot of kind of certain characters. I mean, obviously Prime is very very popular. You know what I mean? But you have you have this real knack of getting some of the weaker characters that maybe don't have that much backstory, don't have um, you know that much shine in the comics, and making them look super super cool. Uh, one that stands out to me is the Firefly you did in the GI Joe comic, where it, it's, like his second version, and the toy is like you know it's not that great it's not the best design in the world but what you did with that particular figure in the comics it makes them like it makes them look really really cool and all of a sudden it's like you have almost have an affinity for that character that That mm-hmm. version of the character that you didn't might not have done uh, in the past, and the same with transformers, like there are certain characters you do in transformers that you know you make them cool by what you do mm-hmm. drawing wise obviously you're just you're probably just drawing uh, you know from what we've how we've talked and how we, how the conversation's gone in this particular hour or so it it strikes me that obviously that's just how you draw things but. Is there a conscious decision there to go this is a bit dull i'm gonna see if i can make him a little bit more a little bit cooler do you know what i mean
2: yeah there is because like i said when when you actually you know your exter- external view of something you new- been asked to work on is one thing but once you're inside it Mm -hmm. once you're in once you're in the theater with those characters performing that narrative if you like yeah they're all real people they're all real characters whatever they might be whether they're robots or aliens or whatever but they're all real characters yeah so you have to imbue them with that so you have to find something about them that can be their personality or their character. Yeah. And show that. Otherwise they're just dummies, you know, they just they just walk on parts and you don't want You see it in movies. You can tell when someone's a walk-on extra.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> you know, you want yeah. some caliber with all of the actors that are going to be in your movies, you like. Yeah. You want something going on. You don't just want them as furniture. Yeah. And it's the same drawing characters. There's always something to get in there, even if it's just a certain pose that gives them something that adds to the scene. I did a lot of studying of it was round about that time of all the stuff in the castle and there was snake eyes and slice and dice. Those those guys. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yes. I studied a lot of information about, you know, the use of katana and and kung fu poses and all that kind of thing. Because I thought somebody had said to me when I first started on the book make sure you get the detail of the guns right because, Larry, (laughs) you don't. And I thought, well, that I get that, but that's just a piece of kit, isn't it? I mm. thought, if I'm going to show any respect toward Larry, it's going to be showing that I've looked at the martial arts yeah. and get that stuff right. Because if you get it right, it's really dramatic. Totally. If you get it wrong, it's clunky. <laughs>
1: well, we always say, especially down that run, Chief and I were talking about how like dynamic the panels are with the ninja force in this, like how you know all the moves and the battles and the fights they're all really impressive and interesting and, and fun that was always something that comes up in the in the conversation so yeah it definitely came across
0: there's yeah. a lot of move there's a lot of movement going on in the panels yeah which is like you said it's it's easy to make things just be flat and static but um especially with those particular characters you don't I don't want ninjas just standing around talking to each other with you know head and shoulder shots <laughs> no so not that's not very really well. is it <laughs> unless they're pretending to be statues but um, <laughs> yeah no i think you it was, it's it's good it's really good you know you mentioned that you decided to come off the gi joe book and then you did the other marvel stuff but then that kind of and obviously the regen stuff but that kind of wrapped up the comics world for you and then I know that you've done some of your own self-published books yeah at what point during working for Marvel did you think I'd like to do something of my own outside of of Marvel
2: I didn't to be honest I was happy doing I was happy working with Marvel and doing the stuff I was doing and, and the gradual slower than I'd like but the gradual kind of climbing through the ranks of the books but then you know you hit the mid 90s and marvel were in all sorts of trouble yeah
0: was there ever any pressure you say about the, the 90s that was obviously partially a boom period especially for image because all those guys had left marvel and launched image and then marvel got into a bit of trouble was there ever any pressure to imitate that image style in the art which was kind of a hyper muscle blown kind of full-on you know action kind of low on plot kind of style or was did that never come into the equation
2: no not really i mean i think early on those guys were a big influence well certainly jim lee i mean i, I loved his stuff on uncanny x-men before they launched x-men you know just for him yep. and then that kind of launched image, really. But his work on Uncanny X-Men was incredible and Punisher, you know. But that was quality work. I, th- I think they kind of overshot, really. Largely those guys, and it's not a criticism of them. I mean, they were doing what they wanted to do and they and they ran with it. But I think the result of that was had something to do with the downturn of Marvel. It was that kind of over-sexing of comics to the point. I don't necessarily mean pornographically. I just mean yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, just totally, making yeah. them... Yeah, really, they did become just too glossy, too sexy, too forced to be collectible. It it wasn't a, a genuine collectability like it had been in the old days. No,
0: it was an investment boom, wasn't it? You were getting, you know, five, I know we get variant covers nowadays, but it was limited runs of variant covers and die cut covers and hologram covers and, you know, whiz bang covers and all that kind of jazz.
2: Yeah it was a nonsense and it was a bit of a they got themselves into trouble by over milking that cash cow and um and and it imploded in the end it was it was almost inevitable but there we go that's what it was but So I I was kind of forced out of comics when they took me off of Spider-Man 2099 because Joey Cavalieri knew that the book was going to be cancelled and he wanted to give the last few issues to, I can't remember the name of the artist, but he was a friend of his and he said, look, he's short of work. If I'm going to give it to anyone, I'm, I'm going to give it to a friend. Right. So, you know, I resented him for that, but I completely understood it, and doesn't yeah. matter now. So, Nel Yomtov, the longtime colorist of Transformers, and but who's also always had been an editor at Marvel, he was on a book called Force Works, and that's all he'd got oh, yeah. and he got. And he gave me the last issue and a half, and he said, but that's all I've got, and I knew that was pretty much the end for me you know because there were too many people then trying to get onto the books that were going to survive the massive coal that was going on right so that last issue that force works that last issue that i did that was apart from a couple of other bits and pieces here and there that pretty much was the end of my marvel gig you know and that final issue of force works is still for me the best work i've ever done really yeah, I look at it now and I and I think, wow, who did that? I don't know why. There was just something. I just went up a gear. I'm gonna have to dig that out. As, I think that was issue 22,
0: possibly. I've got the full run in a long box up here in the loft somewhere. In fact, so I'm gonna dig that out actually, and uh, yeah, give it another look.
2: Yeah, and a great. That was really good ink on it as well. So, so that was really good. But I, yeah. So other than dipping back in with a bit of Transformers over the years, that was kind of comics done for me, and it, it wasn't a considered choice. It was a forced change and so then I started working back into British comics I did some Action Man and Power Rangers and sort of bits and pieces cool. and I was I was kind of flailing around really and then I had the good fortune to uh, get into TV doing character design and production design and storyboarding for TV so that's
1: awesome
2: yeah which I really enjoy it was kind of came through circumstances but I'm kind of glad those circumstances worked out that way really. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. does that
1: differ then in, in terms of the stuff you do? on the comics I mean is there a it, 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 the deadlines is tight I mean what what kind, how does that kind of uh,
2: compare well one of the major differences creatively I suppose is that nobody sees your finished work <laughs> apart, <laughs> from the, apart from the director and like the stunt crew and the VFX team but yeah. you know the consumer doesn't see your work which is why a lot of storyboard artists try to cross over into comics you get that reverse right. flow of traffic because yeah. they want to do something that people are going to see the skill sets are largely the same but you don't have to put the same sort of finish on it but you need to be able to be quick at drawing anything really from any uh, angle but you are working in a a very restricted frame so you can't have all sorts of different panel shapes you are for the most part on a 16 by 9 format you know like screen shape and it's all got to fit in there and you have to work fast I mean if you're penciling a page of artwork a day that's sort of maybe five in comics it's kind of five nicely finished panels in storyboarding you're probably talking anywhere between 30 to 50 panels a day yeah so they they are sketchier and the flow of of action it does bear a lot of similarities, but you have to learn a whole different visual language. But having been a comics artist, it, d- it did help it a lot because I was always I was always very cinematic about my comics work because I love cinema. So I think, you know, I was quite I was quite a long way there anyway, in some senses. But I learned a lot very quickly when I started boarding because you have to learn about, you know, cameras and lenses and yeah. not cross. Line and you know all sorts of different things.
0: I've I've read uh, Horizon, which is one of your self-published books. Very good. I recommend anyone to get out there and read it if they haven't done. And I saw some parts of a new series, Oxygen. Is it? Yeah. How how is that coming along? <laughs> very slowly. Very slowly.
2: Yeah oxygen don't hold your breath. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for those who aren't aware give the listeners a, a brief on Horizon and then <laughs> Oxygen if, if we'll ever see it and what it's about.
2: So Horizon came about because um, at the risk of sounding over dramatic when Marvel filed for bankruptcy and i finished that last issue of force works i came back from i went to america trying to get more work and it was clearly game over for me so in my kind of over romanticized world in my head my destiny was to be a a marvel artist i was born the same year that you know fantastic four number one came out me and marvel had been on the planet (laughs) the same amount of time and whatever all that nonsense but anyway so that was my destiny so to finally draw stuff for marvel was a you know childhood dream come true so you know the other side of that is when that dream gets taken away and you haven't got any work and you don't have a chance of working on all those Avengers and things that you always wanted to work on. I had a breakdown. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but but I did. I went into a lull. I had counseling for a year, blah, 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 blah and it was all fine. I got myself sorted out. But the result of that was an interesting one because I participated in various kind of personal development seminars and just, just trying to find a different way of engaging with life that was, you know, powerful rather than feeling like a victim of yeah, <laughs> bloody mouth yeah, yeah. crashing whatever. Um so I learned an awful lot about that stuff. And then I trained as a coach as well. Okay. And so I, I reached a point on one of those training programs where I thought, I know what there is for me to do. What I need to do is in some way, in just a a good yarn, just a good yarn graphic novel, something interesting, exciting, and a good adventure, get some of that coaching thinking that I've had the benefit of because it really turned my life around get some of that into a graphic novel into a narrative not as the main thing but just there as a bit of a subtext you know and when you think about it that that happens in so much fiction anyway so the biggest thing i can relate horizon to in that sense is probably alice in wonderland meets (laughs) matrix but in a very (laughs) quiet way right it's not complicated it's a very simple linear narrative but it it concentrates on dreams and a lot of the early kind of counseling work that i did was around dream interpretation so i used that so our main character alisanne 15 year old girl there's all sorts of reasons why i chose a 15 year old girl as the main protagonist so she has problems in her own life and then but in her dreams she encounters things that when she understands the metaphor of those dreams, she has a huge breakthrough in her life and why she feels so disempowered in her life. And it, it's kind of a little life lesson for anybody and everybody. But the thing I really got is that when I'd finished it and I released it, everybody who read the book really got it. Like they really got it. They saw aspects of their own life and personality in there. They could relate it to circumstances of their own life that they Needed a bit of a change of how they related to their circumstances. And it was all there for them. Yeah. sent. A, I sent a copy to Dave Gibbons going back to. Oh, wicked. <laughs> again. And, and he said, this is great. And so he wrote me a little kind of little line that I could use for marketing. I sent it to Will Gompertz. I did a radio show with Will Gompertz, the BBC arts editor. Cool. Uh, and he read it and he was the same. This is great. So he gave me a little line I could use to market it. There's a, a well-known philosopher and broadcaster and writer called Alain de Botton. He was on the BBC a lot. He's done, you know, various kind of documentaries about psychology. And I, I ran it past him, and he just said, this is beautiful, you know. But the thing that it got is it's hard to get people to pick it up. Like yeah. I say, the people... Yeah.
0: Because there's not a robot on the front cover.
2: Yeah, there's robots in it. Yeah. <laughs> but in a very different way to Transformers. So I thought, okay, I want to offer the same kind of narrative with the same potential breakthrough that is available for people, as well as just being a good adventure, yarn to people, but have them more readily pick it up. So my initial thought was, what if I rewrote Horizon, essentially the same story, but in a different environment and with a different character, that the people at the conventions that I go to would be more likely to pick up so i thought okay so horizon was like a kind of fantasy emotional drama maybe but i yeah. thought i need to do the same thing but i need to do it as sci-fi so i read so i started to basically rewrite horizon but what happens when you write something is that it begins to write itself for you yeah yeah so the story follows a similar kind of narrative narrative Pace and mood, but it's a very different story. And in terms of the emotional issues it deals with, they're different to Horizon. So we have an astronaut stranded on an unknown planet. He's got a robot as a companion, and through the the dialogue between them and through the things he encounters on his journey on the way to this destination that he's trying to reach which he doesn't know what it is but the robot does you feel, you hear all these breakthroughs and you aren't when you get to the end you get to the denouement as they call it you understand finally what it's all about the same with horizon whenever anybody buys horizon at conventions they pick up the book and they start flicking through and i say don't look at the last page because <laughs> because it's not until you get to the last page that you you have this All right moment you know yeah. where you kind of get what it is. Yeah, Interesting. I've seen,
0: so you showed me some pages of Oxygen. I think it probably was Thought Bubble last. So it's probably almost a year ago. You showed me some pages and I was like, wow, this is and it's a different. And I could tell the storyboarding had been an influence on the panels and pages because different dynamic and a different angle and it just it just looked i could tell it was yours but i could tell it was something different and new and uh i was like oh when's this when's this going to be ready and oh it's not ready yet it's not
2: ready yet so i guess it's still not ready yet <laughs> Still not ready no they, i mean horizon was very much a relatively standard comic page layout so there are different size panels and some are horizontal and some are vertical and whatever all sorts of different sizes and shapes like you get in comics. But with the storyboard experience I've had now a lot of in animation, but more in terms of Oxygen, more to do with live-action storyboarding, I decided to do Oxygen as every page has three 9 panels on it. So it makes it really cinematic, especially as it's sci-fi. It I want it to feel like a sci-fi movie, yeah. quite wide in its scope and very cinematic, so... It's essentially a storyboarding job. It's going to be colour throughout as well. Horizon very oh, wow. definitely the initial release of Horizon it was all in black and white, but that's just for that was for various reasons: some artistic, some to do with printing costs. But I finally managed to find a printer that would publish the book the way that I wanted it to be, which is the front end of Horizon is colour until you go into the dream sequences, which are all black and white. Yeah, um, which was a deliberate. I wanted them to be that way, and then the finals. The final scenes at the end are in colour, but a slightly different palette or different kind of saturation of colour to the beginning. But um, oxygen is going to be colour throughout. So.
0: And the intention is to finish it, I guess, at some point. <laughs> no, that's not. A, I mean, you know, it's, it, I'm, I'm hoping it's more. It's more like I want to read it. So, uh, yeah. But it gets in, you know, it's at this moment in time, that's not generating any funds. So the day job comes first. The day job
2: comes first. I've also had other things going on. So not only am I sort of up to my neck in storyboarding, but I've also, it's a couple of weekends ago, there was an art festival in the town that I live in and I was... Running all of that, so we spent best part of a year putting together an arts festival. So that oh, was taking wow. up a lot of time as well. So yeah, there's been a lot going on. I'm, I've just moved studio as well. I, d- I don't have a studio at home anymore. i've For the last number of years, I've always had a studio somewhere else just to get that separation between yep. life and work. But I've just had a studio move into a bigger studio, which I'm now sharing with my wife, who's also an artist. So once I'm settled in there, then I will pick up on oxygen oxygen again i'm also writing a a book a factual book not a not a fictional book cool yeah so there's a lot going on but i i definitely want to i i'm absolutely determined to get oxygen done but it's i shan't kind of reveal why because it would spoil it in a way but there's some very very personal reasons why i why i not want to but why i need to do Oxygen, yeah.
0: Okay, good, Amazing. good. I can't. I really want to see this. You guys, this is too suspenseful. <laughs> um, are, are you doing any conventions this year at all? Can people catch you anywhere? Uh,
2: the only one I've got is Reading in November. November okay. the.
0: 22nd or something like that Yeah, I'm I'm debating whether to go to I always see it at Thought Bubble among others which is if anyone's listening and they want to go to the best convention in the UK I think Thought Bubble's the best, it's in Leeds well, it was in Leeds, one of the reasons I might not go is they moved it to Harrogate which is kind of northwesterly up from leeds which makes it a bit more bore lake to get to especially for me down south um so that is on the 9th and 10th of november Um, yeah that's that's the very
2: reason why i'm not there
0: (laughs) right okay yeah i'm still debating i looked at flights whether i can fly in and out the same day into leeds bradford airport and i think i i could have got a return for 100 quid which was about the same as what the train was, and it was only an hour flight. But anyway, I'm still debating. If I do go and you're there, anyone else who's listening to the podcast, uh, I might see you there. But uh, if not, and you're not going to be there, but you will be at Reading, where else can the people go online to find your good work, sir?
2: Yeah, you can go to andrewwildman.net, simple as that, really. Yeah, and then have a poke around, there's various stuff on there. But I, I change the website every now and then, but... You can see a little bit of oxygen on there. You can find out about Horizon. You can see some storyboards. Some of my old comics work. So, and information about Shane the Chef, my TV show.
0: Cool. Yeah, which is on Channel Five, I believe. Channel
2: Five. Yeah, yeah. in the morning. I think it's about half seven every morning. Yeah, good stuff.
0: We, we're going to have to close the show with. It's Joe Pub Quiz. Pub Quiz. It's a Joe Pub Quiz. Pub Quiz. Final question. Thought we got away with that. Damn it! It's a rainy Thursday afternoon. You're looking for something to do. You decide to trot down to the local town hall because you've heard there's a fancy dress competition going on. Judge the competitors. Who has the best costume? Will it be Lion-O, dressed as Venom, Ratchet, dressed as Jean Grey, (laughs) Spider-Man 2099, dressed as Snake Eyes, or Jubilee, dressed as Lion-O? Jubilee, dressed as (laughs) Lion-O. Ding, correct answer. I'd have said said that because
1: that was the last one he said and then I forgot the (laughs) rest. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
0: I want to say, or we both want to say, a big thank you to our fabulous guest, Mr. Andrew Wildman. Thank you for spending your rainy Monday evening with oh, a you. couple of big fanboys, uh, one in the loft. Uh, Chris, you're actually in America. You're in, uh, where is it you live, Missouri?
1: Missouri, yeah.
0: Missouri, yes. Uh, so um, three guys getting together for some good old comments and Joe chat. So thanks once again. Make sure you go to uh, Andrew's website, check out all this stuff. Make sure you come back later in the week when we'll have another episode of Talking Joe. We will catch you down the road. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>